Hi, everybody, and welcome to Why Haven't We Heard Of? This is a new podcast from uh, me and Katie. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, the other me. Um, and yeah, the basic idea for this podcast was uh, we had an idea rejected from the BBC, like all podcasts, <laughs> and decided to do it for free. <laughs> so... Um, we're going to be looking at um, basically weird things from history that, and science and whatever we feel like that you haven't heard of but should have because they're fun and interesting or just a bit weird and gross. Um, I think Katie's going to start us off today with a panicked expression and a story. I think she's chosen something a bit classy to start us off. What someone had to do. <laughs> Um, yeah. So I should, um, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I should just, um, mention that James told me to do something like weird and I somehow uh, transformed that into just like write a, a huge essay on whatever you happen to be looking at at the moment so that's what I did <laughs> uh, so I I will be talking about Mary Ellen Pleasant who is someone that I assume most people outside of one particular city in the world have not heard of um, mm. and I think they should have Sounds good. Let's go. Uh, so Mary Ellen Pleasant was born. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, so Mary Ellen Pleasant was born probably around 1812 or 1814 in either Georgia or Virginia or Philadelphia. She was born into slavery, unless she wasn't, because she might actually have been the illegitimate child of a priestess and a plantation owner, depending on who you believe. Um, it's quite a margin of error there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, she had some beginnings, but the rest is up for interpretation. Um, since we don't really have any way of figuring out it, what the exact truth is, what with her living through a time when people could legally be bought and sold based on the colour of their skin, and therefore no one really thought her biographical details would possibly end up being important in any way. So our best bet is probably to just believe her version of events, which is that she was born in Philadelphia. Her father was Hawaiian, and her mother came from Louisiana. Um, so I haven't been able to find any information on whether or not her mother was enslaved, uh, but given the time period and the state, it's, it's likely. <laughs> um, but the idea that she made it to Philadelphia and that that's where Mary was born is um, like, it's clearly an important idea to Mary because obviously Philadelphia was a northern state. So being born in Philadelphia meant that she was born a free person, not a slave. Um, so, because this was the past, and everything in the past sounds like the opening to a whimsical poem about child endangerment, she was sent away to Nantucket at a young age to work as a maid for a Quaker family. Um, so That's what they'd love doing back then. <laughs> 
like it's kind of like Pokemon rules, you know, you're ten. <laughs> I found you some Quakers. <laughs> uh, so, um, America is really big, uh, and if you look on a map at the distance between Philly and Nantucket, it doesn't look that big. Um, so I, I figured out it's basically the same distance as London to Scotland that she <laughs> on her own as a child. So, um, you know, like next time you are worried about leaving your kids with a childminder for a bit longer than usual, just remember that historically speaking, anything is your two hands on for not sending them to a different country for gainful employment. Um, but it's around it's around now that we start to see Mary's um, sort of wit and mouse that would come to define her life and would eventually make her um, arguably the first ever black self-made millionaire, um, which just to reiterate, she did during a time where if she had walked into the wrong half of the country that she was a citizen of, she could pretty much legally just be kidnapped and forcibly enslaved for the rest of her life. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so the sociologist and civil rights activist, W.E.B. Du Du Bois, called Dubois for a very long time until I saw it written out. Uh, would later call her, quote, quite a different kind of woman and yet strangely effective and influential. Here was a coloured woman who became one of the shrewdest business minds of the state. She anticipated the development in oil. She was a trusted confidant of the many of many of the California pioneers, such as Ralston, Mills and Booth, and for years was a power in San Francisco affairs. Throughout a life that was perhaps more than unconventional, she treasured a bitter hatred for slavery and a certain contempt for white people, which, you know... It's fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, as you just heard Dubois say, she did end up in California, but before that she evidently spent some time in Boston, and we know this because she got married there to a man who was probably called James Henry Smith and was probably not black, uh, which was quite noteworthy in itself for the time, um, even in a northern state. Was this part of her notes that we learned this from? Just trying to... Pardon? Was this, was this part of her notes that we learned this from? So I'm just trying to figure out if she's like writing. He's probably called James. <laughs> probably James. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he was my first husband. So. I don't remember them all. <laughs> um, actually, his historians aren't sure whether he was white or mixed race. Like, there's not that much information on him. So I guess she probably didn't mention him that much in her autobiography. <laughs> um. We do know that he was an abolitionist, um, but he was also like a successful merchant at the time. And when he died, uh, he left her um, like uh, quite a lot of money. Um, so he died in the 1840s and he left her a few like tens of thousands of dollars. So if you scale that up to modern dollars, we're talking like half a million. So she was pretty rich. <laughs> um feel like I'm reading one of those articles <laughs> where they're staying at, uh, where they say how they bought their house by the time they were 30 and yeah, exactly. it was their parents' money here. Well, just follow <laughs> these, these hacks and you too can be <laughs> a homeowner in antebellum America. <laughs> um, so he died in the 1840s 
<coughs> and it was the, the very end of the 1840s. That's when the, the gold rush of California hit. And so Mary, uh, she took this money that she'd just inherited. Uh, she found a new husband called Mr. Pleasant. She became Mary Ellen Pleasant. Uh, and she took herself 3,000 miles across the continent to San Francisco. Okay. So um, it's important to get a bit of context here because California, sorry about my cold, uh, California wasn't just like this state where some like Yosemite Sam looking dudes had found a bit of gold at this point. Um, up until the 24th of January, 1848, so we have a really specific date on this, uh, California was just kind of this like fair, far west land with no real like official government presence at all and was kind of still from a white colonialist viewpoint still kind of just full of scary native american people um actually it was only two years before she went before um that date 1848 um it was still part of mexico so it wasn't even the usa anyway um but then, like I say, 24th of January, 1848, some guy named James W. Marshall, he finds gold at a sawmill yeah. in Coloma, California, and everyone goes berserk. Yeah. Um, so the population jumps by like 300,000 people. Mm. Um, everyone's getting rich. The U.S. government suddenly decides that actually this piece of land it's sort of had dibs on but not really done anything with so far. It would actually make a, a good taxpaying state after all. <laughs> Um, and obviously, as always happens, when a bunch of white people suddenly turn up in a place, hundreds of thousands of natives are wiped out. My <laughs> <laughs> um, city, here. kill everyone. <laughs> it, it's our way. It is our way. Um, but that isn't to say that uh, the sudden rush to settle California wasn't was like bad for for all people of colour, because actually there was one group of people uh, for whom the gold rush was even more enticing. And remember, we're talking about something where the baseline enticement level is like, you might get rich beyond your wildest dreams. So you can imagine what we're, what we're dealing with here. Um, so those people were African-Americans who saw this new state as a place where they could get rich and live free, just like their white neighbours. Um, uh, California entered the US as part of the, I think it was called the Texas Compromise, which basically said Texas could enter as a slave state, but California had to balance it out by entering as a free state. Right. Um, so in New England, uh, where Mary was living at the time, um, it was just full of stories of black prospectors hitting it rich on the West Coast. Uh, and one black prospector wrote at the time, he wrote in a letter to his wife that, quote, this is the best place for, for black folks on the globe. All a man has to do is work and he will make money. Uh, so perhaps the clearest um, microcosm of the effect of the gold rush was in San Francisco. So nowadays we think of San Francisco as this like big, expensive city with various landmarks everywhere that aliens love to destroy and blockbusters. Um, but in 1846, so two years before the gold rush hit, it had a population of about 200 people. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, 200 people. It was like a shack in a church and nothing else. Um, by 1852, so literally six years later, um, the population was 36,000 people. Uh, so we're talking nearly a 200-fold increase in the space of much less than a decade. One of my favourite um, stories is from around this time. I was considering it doing it for this podcast, but I wish I had now about the Eggers. Have you heard about the Eggers? Uh, so, so since like the city expanded so quickly, um, there was basically no farming in- infrastructure or anything. So no one in San Francisco had any protein. <laughs> and the price of eggs went up to like one dollar an egg. So that's like uh, 30 quid uh, per egg in today's money. And so, yeah, like an omelette would cost you 60 quid. <laughs> <laughs> and so they went out. to. Uh, so this one guy went out to this um, island um, just off the coast of San Francisco, where there was this big group of kind of endangered birds. Well, they're endangered now. Uh, <laughs> and just started like yeah just taking all the eggs nicking all their eggs that stealing all the eggs of a what species would have <laughs> problems with its population <laughs> i just noticed so, that you have almost the exact same bookcase set up as me <laughs> i mean there's only like one way to do a bookcase really oh yeah hmm. good picture yeah. Okay. So. Um, so oh, oh yeah, I was, I was just gonna. Sixty dollar omelets. Oh yeah, fifty dollar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he. So he would like smash because these one type of eggs were disgusting. If they went off, he would just basically <laughs> smash all the eggs on day one, and then. Oh no! <laughs> and then so oh, that you could guarantee that the rest would be fresh. Why were none of these people just buying one egg and making <laughs> a chicken with it? <laughs> and then no. they could have loads of eggs. No, it's you spend your sixty quid, you guzzle it down like a mad chicken. <laughs> oh, yeah, so. Like guy but like <laughs> it's a chicken um so yeah um anyway i'll probably save it for a later episode but they this basically developed into this um so gangs of eggers started going to this island and there are all kinds of fights and murders between these gangs of eggers who wanted to get the eggs like there was gold they could have been earning for basically <laughs> Oh man, imagine moving to the gold rush era of California and it's I like won't make... <laughs> This is Eggtown, baby. <laughs> uh, yeah. Big gold field. I will make my money with omelets. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the money is. <laughs> but yeah, sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm just thinking about, like, you know, Cal- the history of California is, like, Gold Rush and, like, Hollywood. And in the middle, there's, <laughs> like, a little bit where people went bananas over eggs. Okay. Um, right, so San Francisco. Um, yeah, so it jumped from, from 200 people to 36,000 in the space of hardly any time at all. And something like 90% of these people that had moved here were men and 
um, obviously in those days, if you popped out of your mum with a winky instead of a foo-foo, it meant that your life would be spent hunting or learning a trade or, you know, fist fighting bears or whatever it was that men did in the olden days. Um, the important thing is that they weren't often taught how to cook or clean or basically just run a house from day to day. Uh, because the general assumption was that they have a woman legally tied to them who could do that for them. Mm. So here you have Mary Ellen Pleasant looking over at California and seeing a city where there's, you know, 30,000 people, 29,800 of them are brand new to the area. 27,000 of them have been surviving for the last couple of years on, like, whatever bear they managed to KO last night, a really expensive omelette and whiskey. Um, and all of them, if you believe the stories people are sending back, have much more important things on their minds than the fact that she's black. So Mary decides to go to San Francisco and she starts working as a cook. And it's a good move because she is making 10 times what she would have made back east. Um, but she's still got this fortune from her dead husband. And something that she starts to do pretty immediately is to invest it in um, really more or less everything. She bought boarding houses and laundries and dairies. And she had stocks in Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo, sorry. And she had real estate. Um, and actually, one of the uh, like funnest things about all of this is that her modern biographers reckon the real reason she was working as a cook when, you know, she didn't really need to. She had the equivalent of half a million dollars. Um, but the thing she knew that, uh, the thing was she knew that no one was really going to pay much attention to her because you know, she's a late 30s black female cook. Um, so she's working these jobs and looking after all of these important businessmen who are involved with this big economic boom in California. And she's basically invisible to them. So what she's also doing is she's listening to these guys chat about investments and opportunities. And basically, Pierce Brosnan era James Bonding her way into a, a bunch of like really successful business ventures. <laughs> she's basically like rigging the market in her favor, which, you know, fair play to her. Um, so she was she was always kind of going to be a lot more suspicious in cafes now. Yeah. <laughs> um, she was always kind of secretive about her exact finances. Uh, so it's probably impossible to say exactly how rich she got. But we do know that she and her business part partner together had made 30 million dollars by 1875. And to be clear, <laughs> that's 30 million eighteen seventy five dollars. Oh wow. So okay. something like seven hundred million dollars today. Um, she owned property in San Francisco, Oakland and Canada. Uh, and she lived in a huge thirty room mansion in San Francisco and listed her profession in the eighteen ninety census as capitalist, which would make you kind of a dick these days, but at the time it was kind of a pretty <laughs> cool. So um, she's not she's not working at the as a cafe, like, cook or anything anymore. I think she still is, actually. I think she kind of does it. Yeah, not I like, think that she... I might why is that woman wearing a di diamond chef's hat? Yeah. yeah <laughs> that's like, you know, that's where she gets her information, you know? <laughs> um, she's swirling brandy again. <laughs> actually, I'm pretty sure she does, because she's, she's specifically named in a... Uh, 
a very high profile um, divorce case and uh, she's named as like a witness because the wife has been talking to her and her di- the wife says like oh no any highborn lady would talk to her her cook like that mm. so yeah I think be. she probably still is like oh, well wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the the really awesome thing about her life at this time was the stuff that she was using her money for behind the scenes, uh, which was essentially helping to set up black society as a functioning kind of piece of California. Um, so she helped fund the, um, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Athenaeum building, uh, which had a library and a meeting place for the city's black population. Uh, she donated to and supported black-owned media and churches, and she would hire mostly black people in the businesses that she owned. Uh, she was kicked off one of the city's streetcars in 1866, and she sued over it and won. So she was awarded $500 in damages, and segregation on streetcars was ruled illegal in the whole state by the state Supreme Court. Nice. Um, so that $500 was later deemed to be excessive and she was like she had it taken away. But the ban on segregation, as far as I know, believe, um, remained in, in place. So yeah. seems she didn't like care about $500 anyway. <laughs> kind of kind of a small change at that point. Oh, yeah. What am I going to do? Buy three eggs? <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's pretty great. Um, but her... Um, like essentially activism, I guess we call it today. Um, this didn't stop at infrastructure and litigation, important though those are, because um, as we've already said, she was living in very different times. And as you you know, for, for black people, especially very violent times, and she was lucky enough to be able to, but also just plain badass enough to actually put her money towards things like basically single-handedly establishing the California Underground Railroad and oh. some slave revolts and escapes across the US. Ooh, so, that's cool. That took a twist. Yeah. Um, it, get, it gets twistier. So um, <laughs> one very famous incident, she shouted this man named Archie Lee, who was brought to California as an enslaved person by a man called Charles Stovall. So uh, what he was doing, Stovall, he was hiring Lee out for labor and then taking the wages for himself, right? Because as far as he's concerned, he's a slaver. He's like renting out his property. Uh, okay, but, but California is a free state. So what he's doing is a leap. Yeah, completely. And Lee escapes, which is a lot easier to do in California because there aren't like literally gangs of slave patrols hunting him down with guns and dogs like in the south um and he is sheltered by the local black community that mary helped set up and she lets him stay in her house for a while but um stovall hunts him down and has him arrested um and uh stovall takes him to court i'm not quite sure on what ground yeah like, refusing to be mine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Best <laughs> um, of yourself. Um, but, but yeah, uh, there's records of Stovall saying, like, you know, Lee is worth $1,500. He's my property. So um, I, I assume it's, it's that kind of thing. Um, 
and he's he's citing a federal rule that says that escaped slaves have to be returned to their slavers. Um, so um, the this goes to the court and the black community in in San Francisco, and especially Mary Ellen Pleasant. They donate so much to his defense fund that he can afford Archie Lee. I mean, obviously. Um, he can afford this like uh, really big name fancy civil li- civil rights lawyer um, and the judge ends up ruling in his favour so he's free and he actually does end up free but it's not quite that simple because this case gets fought all the way up to um, the federal level so he, he is freed by a, a local judge and then it goes to the California Supreme Court um, and the California Supreme Court at this time has this just incredibly racist judge like i mean every everyone was kind of racist in like 18 whatever but um he's like enthusiastically a supporter of stopping black people coming to california at all and so um unsurprisingly he overturns archie lee's freedom he wants california to be like a white only enclave it's um yeah like oregon uh he basically rules that Stovall is too young and too poorly to be expected to um, not have people as property. Right. Uh, um, seems like his problem rather than... Yeah. <laughs> seems like... I don't know. <laughs> I'm so young. <laughs> Give me that, that person. <laughs> I own you now. I've got a cough. Uh, so, um, that that ruling uh, goes like the 19th century equivalent of viral, um, and the whole country basically, except I guess probably the slavers in the south, gets really pissed off. And there's uh, some kind of troll move where someone gets Stovall arrested for kidnapping um, because he kidnapped his slave. Um, And eventually a federal judge overturns this overturning and Lee is free again and he ends up in Canada and hopefully has a grand old time drinking maple syrup and eating poutine for the rest of his life. Um, But the the point is that's the kind of thing that Mary Ellen Pleasant's doing. Um, Probably what's ended up being like her most infamous campaign that she funded was John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Uh, so John Brown was this um, nationally renowned abolitionist. He's really famous in America, um, but I know I have never really heard of him like in school or anything, so I'm assuming most people in the UK at least aren't super familiar with his story. Um, so just like the absolute basics, he was extremely religious, and he basically saw it as his God-given duty to bring about the end of slavery by any means possible. And since peaceful means, let's face it, had not been successful at all at this point, uh, he said that, you know, they had to use violent means. Um, and, of course, in the end, he was completely right because the American Civil War ended up being the longest war in U.S. history to this day, I think. Um, but anyway, uh, John Brown, uh, he was starting to, he was trying to start a slave revolt at a town called Harper's Ferry by taking over a major arsenal that was there. Um, So there was him and 21 other guys trying to take over this entire town. So that was the first sign that something might happen. Um, (laughs) Several 
seven of I don't know how big the town was, but probably yeah. more than twenty two people. Uh, seven of these people were these guys were black. Five of them were either currently or formerly enslaved. Um so yes, it was a huge failure. Uh Brown was counting on the support of thousands of local enslaved people, but he had no way of actually contacting them mm-hmm. and so nobody turned up. Uh, the authorities <laughs> um, and once the marines turned up the whole thing lasted uh, literally about three minutes picturing it like a kind of a really sad birthday <laughs> <laughs> that sucks firemen turn up on my birthday I'm not sure about the marines <laughs> um, what did you we just leaving that of you may have burned something and moving on or <laughs> <laughs> I was adjacent to somebody else burning something, okay. Let's <laughs> um, so John Brown and six others were tried and executed for treason and murder and inciting a slave revolt, which in fairness is exactly what they tried out tried to do, so they kinda got him on that one. Um but really the only kind of success that you could say this slave revolt had was the publicity uh, ended up being a big part of what kicked off the Civil War two years later. And that did end up sla- uh, ending slavery. So kind of John Brown's one, that one. <laughs> yes. Um, but he was hanged. And after he was hanged, the local officials found this note in his pocket that said, um, it said, the axe is laid at the foot of the tree. When the first blow is struck, there will be more money to help. Uh, so nobody knew who this uh, message was from, but they kind of figured some rich northern anti-slavery guy. Um, actually, it was from Mary Ellen Pleasant. So she told her biographer before she died that she donated $30,000 to the effort, which is you know a, a ridiculous amount even today. But at the time... <laughs> Was the it was insane. It's it's the equivalent of like nearly a million dollars today. So okay, this guy sounds great, but so he had twenty seven million dollars and managed to get twenty seven people. Twenty seven, one nearly one million dollars. Okay, yeah, but yeah, he had nearly a million dollars. Twenty two people, all of them failed. Like he, I don't know. He just needs like a communications guy. That's <laughs> like a, a marketing exec. <laughs> You've got the vision, but <laughs> um, okay. So uh, yeah, so she was pretty cool, um, but unfortunately. There Sorry, just going back. Like, <laughs> do, say say the axe thing now. Don't don't wait and leave it in your pocket. <laughs> yeah. Just leave it there. <laughs> the axe thing I'll, was cool. I'll it if they ask. But this bitch out like it's the New York Times crossword. Um. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, there are some things that even being insanely wealthy cannot change. And one of those things is the willingness of white people in 19th century America to be big old racists. Um, 
He was never respected by white society, despite being obviously shrewd and clever and upstanding and everything. Um, she was known by white folk in San Francisco as um, Mammy Pleasant, which is basically just like a horribly racist stock character of uh, like an enslaved black housekeeper nanny sort of figure. Like uh, she's a character that like the, the Mammy is like a character in Gone with the Wind and everything. It's just it's super racist. Um, and she really hated this name, which is understandable. Um, she once told a local paper that, quote, um, I don't like to be called Mammy by everybody. By the way, I'm not doing an accent when I quote anyone in this. <laughs> um, yeah, that's advisable for a place. They all had this sort of posh um, farmer accent. I just, just want to make that clear. Um, right. I, I don't like to be called Mammy by everybody. Put that down. I am not Mammy to everybody in California. I got a letter from a minister in Sacramento. It was addressed to Mammy Pleasant. I wrote him back on his own paper that my name was Mrs. Mary E. Pleasant. I wouldn't waste any of my paper on him. Um, she also had to live with accusations of being a witch and a poisoner and a baby farmer at one point. But really, the biggest turn of kick in the teeth came from... Uh, came when her longtime business partner, Thomas Bell, who I mentioned very briefly earlier, died in, 19, in 1892. So, as I said before, a lot of Mary's wealth was kind of like not shady, but intentionally kept a bit cryptic. Um, yeah. And what we do know about her wealth, a lot of it is, um, you know, her and her and Thomas Bell's wealth. Um, and the reason that is. The reason for that is like kind of depressingly obvious. It's because she was a black woman in the U.S. Uh, in the 19th century, and she was highly aware that her situation was kind of precarious. Yeah. So um, California was a free state, but it's not like that guaranteed that she was safe if the local white population decided that she was getting a bit uppity. Um, so it actually, when uh, Thomas Bell died, it turned out a lot of her portfolio was in his name instead and when he died that all went to his wife mm. and she hated Mary Ellen Pleasant oh, um, so after this amazing life of moving to California and becoming this formidable figure who fought against slavery and segregation and made a name and a life for herself at a time when everything about her was an excuse to force her back down Mary is kicked out of her house that she built, mm. loses most of her wealth. It all goes to Thomas Bell's wife. Uh, Mary dies in 1904. It's not tragic. Like, she's not, like, she's not, like, impoverished, but she's very much reduced, shall we yeah. say. Um, the local paper runs the incredibly classy headline, Mammy Pleasant will work weird spells no more, which is... Ugh incredibly good of her of them um and her request for her gravestone inscription uh is ignored for 60 years Ugh. so yeah um it was eventually added in 1965 so it now says as per her request a friend of john brown um she's kind of famous in san francisco these days um so i guess it ended up in the long, long term, okay, for her. Uh, there's a Mary Ellen Pleasant Day there, which is pretty cool. Um, but I'm not sure how well known she is outside San Francisco. I had definitely never heard of her before a few weeks ago. Um, mm. And that's a shame. 
because yeah. she's pretty awesome. And even if she was an unapologetic capitalist, I can forgive her. So I'm just going to leave with a very short quote from her that kind of sums up her life. Uh, she said, I'd rather be a corpse than a coward. Nice. I like it. So that's a super long story of Mary Ellen Pleasant. That is really good. And I feel really awful with what mine is now going to go into. <laughs> if yeah. you, if you've I got... understand it's about the equally subjective, subjected class of people. <laughs> white poopy doctors. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> guy called James Morrison, and you have to remember that name because I'm going to be referring to him as Doctor Shits throughout this. <laughs> the lead singer of the Doors. <laughs> I've made a huge mistake if that's true. <laughs> like, I need a researcher if it turns out to be the Doors guy. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, do you have enough time to do this? Yep. Okay, cool. Yep. Okay. I'm allowed to carry on working until midnight, and it still counts as today, so. <laughs> you said that like it sounded like a good thing, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a le- millennial, baby. <laughs> they let me work for days <laughs> into the night. If I... <laughs> now it's the money. <laughs> I won't say any of the jokes that are on my mind because I like keeping my job. (laughs) Cool. Okay. (laughs) So, James Morrison, or Dr. Shit, as we will genuinely be referring to him throughout this, was a doctor in the uh, 1800s. I've happily written 1800 century, but I'm pretty sure it was the 1800s. That's quite Um, far in the future. Yes. Yeah. Who thought he could? Uh, so he thought that he could cure just about everything by make, making people have unstoppable diarrhea. So, uh, first bit of background: in the 1800s, medicine wasn't exactly as developed as you'd like it to be today. And so, like, this is just plucking random examples, but there's that Mary Toft woman who claimed she was uh, firing rabbits out of her vagina. And yeah, I remember her. And stuff. I mean, like, and then... I remember reading about her. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, she's not a mate. <laughs> <laughs> we just wanted to get into the Daily Mail, okay? Things got out of hand. <laughs> that would do it. <laughs> Start lower. <laughs> <laughs> and they were immigrant rabbits. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, she she would. Uh, she claimed she was giving birth to rabbits in the medical profession, which is like, yeah, OK, a lady fires out rabbits out of that and that kind of thing. And, yeah, made a note in a file that read rabbit vag rather than investigate any further, that kind of thing. Write it up, Obadiah. We've got a paper on our hands. <laughs> <laughs> Papers are a lot more exciting back then, weren't they? <laughs> oh, these things are all peer review. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, there are still doctors out there saying who would look at someone with a sore throat and just say, take this man's blood, um, in response to every mild illness. Yeah. Um, 
even if like the problem was this man didn't have enough blood, <laughs> like um, they would take more. That was genuinely a thing that they used to do. Um, so and yeah, this wasn't like fringe quacks either. Like um, George Washington, um, I don't know if he. You know, it's probably well known in America, but not so much. Oh here, no, I've I heard of George Washington. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're oper- operating on different levels of history here, aren't we? I'm gonna, <laughs> gonna come in here with Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> he was the president, but he was killed. <laughs> not yeah. currently alive. <laughs> Bit of trivia for you. <laughs> Um, so, so when George George Washington, the, the tale of how he died is just ridiculous. He like, um, so he 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 basically did just have a sore throat from riding on a horse um, in no, the cold. That's not how you. Get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you explain correlation again? Horses cause disease. Write <laughs> it down, Obadiah. <laughs> Obadiah, he's my notes guy. <laughs> so, so yeah, he had this sore throat, and his team of doctors, um, they just kept on taking away his blood. And by the time they finished, he they'd taken around. 3.75 litres of his blood, so that's like that's two, <laughs> that's like two really big cokes. Like, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, what a weird measurement that you would use. Iron brew, like, but yeah, like two really. What are we? Drink of your choice. <laughs> I have no idea how big an iron brew is. Okay. I'm gonna have to put this in scrumpy, aren't I? Three three point nearly four liters. Uh yeah. This is over a couple of days. In like two days of that. Uh hang on, I've got the measurements somewhere. Uh noted it down. Over twelve hours hours they removed eighty ounces of his blood. Don't know why they put that in weight. Not like a cake <laughs> ingredient. That's everything. They do everything weird. Yeah, three so cups. Gonna, you, make it, you make it a cake using American measures, and they're like, yeah, you need this this mass of flour and this weight of liquid, and you're just yeah. like, oh. Yeah, apparently I hate it's the same. everything about this. <laughs> apparently, it's the same in medicine. You lose like a stick of tumor. <laughs> <laughs> just like. A dash. <laughs> I'm afraid you've got a soup son of cancer. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> no, no, that's good. <laughs> I'm sorry. I work in metric. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah. So they took his blood and. Uh, so, so actually, yeah, you so said I don't feel like too bad for him because he was kind of really into it. <laughs> like, <laughs> he was like asking them to take his blood. Like, um, yeah, uh, my throat's so sore. Please take all my fucking blood, that kind of thing. And, uh, but the worst part was like, 
can make you feel bad, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, the worst part of the story was that um, the doctor that he'd actually sent for um, that arrived too late, um, a guy called Dr. William Thornton, um, he wanted to try and resurrect Washington by pumping him full of lamb's blood. But, like, <laughs> I dislike it. <laughs> I, dis- I dislike that I now know this information. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, there's a bedside chat with the relatives when you're trying to raise that idea? <laughs> oh, what a bad day. Oh, oh this, is, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. Can I fill him full of sheep? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. So yeah. So anyway. Zombie. Yeah. So. So yeah, that's the kind of disgusting stuff that was going on at the time, and that, and you know, when President Garfield got shot, they, they all got killed in some way. Well, um, cause that's how time works, I guess. But anyway, President Garfield got shot, and he spent his final few months with a team of quacks around him, and. They, so the thing is, they fished around in his guts to try and get the bullets, bullet out and ended up giving him sepsis. And then for the final few months of his life, uh, they decided to feed him beef extract through his anus. Um, like <laughs> they figured that would kind of feed him better than, you know, in the mouth, which is traditional. Um, any law of evolution that would support that conclusion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I feel like, in terms of digestion, the anus has a a defined role. (laughs) It doesn't need to branch out. (laughs) (laughs) Sterification was not needed. (laughs) Let it (laughs) specialise. So, yeah, um... So yeah, even presidents at this time were reading this horrible quack treatment. They were putting, they tried putting eggs up there mixed with ground brie, ground beef, and that kind of stuff. And God, and they were expensive. So, <laughs> um, and yeah. So anyway, all that is just to say that uh, medicine was pretty bad at the time. So James Morrison. Um, he rightly thought that bloodletting was terrible and an awful idea, but um, but he still believed that all diseases were cured by the impurities of the blood, which is for me similar to bloodletters. But his solution was that you've got to shit it out. <laughs> so <laughs> he basically his initial belief came from shit and blood were the same thing. <laughs> When ground beef is coming out of there, <laughs> kind of the same. Yeah. So, so his own belief came from um, the fact that he was able to cure his own lifelong constipation through creating his own um, homebrew laxatives. And for some reason, he extrapolated from this that making people poo more easily would cure people with things like aneurysms or smallpox. <laughs> and so. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
This is like genuine, like aneurysms. I can't poo. <laughs> and his takeaway was <laughs> can be cured by pooping. <laughs> I've got all the data I need. <laughs> got an aneurysm you're you're gonna have to shit that out (laughs) so yeah um so yeah no further testing 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 needed he created his own brand of vegetable pills to help people crap out the bad juju he called these pills the universal vegetable pills and marketed them as being able to cure absolutely everything and i really mean everything like uh one advert um, shows a man who no longer needs crutches having shit out his bad legs. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, the man in the advert, uh, he says, he's explaining to a guy who's still got on crutches, um, another amputee, and he's saying, when I awakes this morning... <laughs> I am going to do an accent because it's spelt awakes. And there's no way to do that in my own accent. <laughs> when I awakes this morning, and to kick off, that's not a good accent. Okay. <laughs> Just read it. That'll all get edited out. When I awakes this <laughs> morning. <laughs> <laughs> when I awakes this morning to kick off the clothes, he exclaims. I'm blessed if I didn't find myself with this these here couple of jolly good legs and my old wooden ones right at the bottom of the bed. Hang on, so, he's saying that he shat so much he regrew legs. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's that is the gist of the advert. He takes these pills, he restores the legs of amputees. <laughs> like, yeah, um, yeah, he wrote this like seven. He's going to get found out really quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you would think. um, uh, Well, he kind of did get found out really, really quickly. But like individually, (laughs) by individual amputees was the problem. Like they weren't all sharing tips. Like didn't have a group where they'd say. They didn't have WhatsApp at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Did not shit out my legs. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, I mean, you'll be shocked to learn he wasn't too fussed about things like figuring out dosage. Um, as far as he was concerned, if you fancied ramming down dozens of the laxatives, that was just fine. Um, like he even recommended you take laxatives for the shits to so as to effectively carry off the morbid humans, humors, not humans. Um, and dysentery as well. Um, <laughs> so I, I got all this from his book, by the way, which is like a 600 page book on how having diarrhea makes you feel fantastic. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Just skimming through it was amazing. Um, so. I reckon he was just like, 
like one of those intensely online guys where he's like, actually, I'm laughing. I'm loving this right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to write a 600 page book on why shitting myself to death is great, actually. <laughs> I can't move from this toilet. This is great. I love the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes on you. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, needlessly to say, but you shouldn't really force yourself to have worse diarrhoea to cure your diarrhoea. It's like asking someone to cure your ball, ball pain with successive blows to the testicles. Um, so he, like, he advised people that you were likely to feel worse before you got better. So when you're having horrible diarrhoea, you're not thinking, oh, this is bad. You're meant to think now part of the process yeah so yeah so he said don't like don't let that stop you taking this very profitable medicine <laughs> just because you're <laughs> shitting blood that kind of thing so of course uh the pills start to kill people <laughs> um like quite a lot of people um including like this one 15 year old girl who died in horrible distress Yeah, it's a consequence of taking his medicine. And this little apprentice boy who we're going to name Tiny Tim. (laughs) (laughs) There's no record of his name. And yeah, so we're going to call him Tiny Tim. (laughs) Sad. He was not saved by Ebenezer Scrooge, but instead shat himself. (laughs) (laughs) Complicate the book somewhat, the Muppet (laughs) version. As the R-rated Muppet version. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, everyone, uh, everyone at this point, uh, like in the medical profession, who, like, they were like still killing people by bloodletting and stuff. So let's not see them as the heroes. But they knew that he was like killing people with these laxatives, and so did all the courts and stuff. But um, he managed to get away from the blame by um, essentially they would prosecute just the vendors who would um, sell the pills rather than the big um, distributor, like a mob boss pushing yeah. crack cocaine. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except the crack cocaine makes you shit yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this in 1936, 1836, sorry, this one agent was jailed for manslaughter after a 32 year old who was suffering from mild knee pain. <laughs> <laughs> was given 1,000 of these laxatives over 20 days and Jesus Christ. Like, shat everything out. <laughs> and yeah essentially shat himself for death to death for an injury he could have walked off basically sprayed his knee and was told you'll shit out the sprain and a week later dead so yeah it's grim Fun. <laughs> so these accusations of manslaughter just kept on rolling in um there's at least 13 that went to trial but he just managed to escape whilst all these other people were jailed um uh, with all the deaths piling up, other medical professionals began to campaign against him. 
but they were really ineffective at slowing down his sails. Um, so again, it's kind of an example of ship marketing because they all they really need to say is like big letters: these pills will make you poo yourself to death. Yeah. <laughs> and they opted for things like they depicted people being turned into vegetables. Like, um, yeah, I know. It's like that's not the thing, is it? <laughs> I mean, maybe they were working on like the sort of logic that almost everything made you shit yourself to death back in those days. <laughs> Turning into a radish was actually more of a sort of threat. Yeah, that's run of the mill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all shit ourselves to death. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. They kept they kept it up and they they persuaded some vendors to not like take the pills because obviously they'd get um, jailed uh, after they killed someone. So they did cut um, cut into his profits, but uh, but yeah, they again they were still quacks and horrible people, and their advertising campaign was fairly racist. So like yay doctors because <laughs> they're like massive racists they basically just depicted um black people taking the pills and like being really stupid it's really horrible i won't like describe it in full detail because it's grim there you can google it that you can count on i think that's the moral of today isn't it? if yeah. there's something you can count on it's people <laughs> being racist <laughs> yeah um so yeah, so uh, unlike yours, which had a very downbeat ending, this has a good ending for him, the horrible man. He eventually died in 1840, very rich and unprosecuted man. Um, before his sons took over the business and may went on to make a shitload more money with just yeah these uh, vegetable pills that make people people poo themselves to death and various other kind of quack medicine. Cool. Yeah. The end. Everything <laughs> was great. <laughs> it's less classy like, than If you're going to die from being either bled or, or shitting yourself to death, I think I would choose bleeding. <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there. Controversial, maybe. But yeah, I hope you never offered that choice. Sincerely. No, but I'm just saying that if I am offered that choice, I know which one I choose. You've got to consider these things. You can't be caught off guard. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. I I've guess. had norovirus and I've given blood and I'm just saying I know which one was more pleasant. <laughs> so on that bombshell... <laughs> 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 More tales of what Katie would prefer to do Shitting or bleeding <laughs> um, Right, so if Do we do the other things at the end of podcasts? If you want to find Katie, she's Do we do the things at the end of podcasts? Yeah, that they no. do at the end of podcasts No one's allowed to find me Oh right, okay <laughs> <laughs> Do not locate Katie. <laughs> Katie's location is 
I'm disclosed. I really shouldn't have James done this with witness protection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you want me... kids, baby, look it up. Yeah, and I'm Jim M. Felton. There we go. Uh, tune in, like, in a couple oh, of weeks or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Depends how much you mock us for this one. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't able to keep the actual worry out of my voice there. <laughs>